Well, we're going to finish up today uh, this first letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica. We began walking through this letter uh, the first Sunday in June, and now come the first Sunday in August, we're going to come to the close of this. And next week, we're going to start into Second Thessalonians, if you're wondering where we're going in God's Word. In the coming weeks, we'll be jumping into Second Th- Thessalonians next Sunday and uh, spending five or six weeks in that book as well. So, But for today, we're going to kind of come full circle. Uh, we began this series of messages uh, with the words found in chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. That very first message that we preached in this series was called Grace and Peace. And today we're going to come full circle and we're going to talk about peace and grace. Paul bookends this letter with these two central Christian concepts that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And by his grace, we have been saved. These two main thoughts of the Christian life and of our faith. And so as we consider these today, we want to look at the end of Paul's powerful little letter to the Thessalonians. And he ends this letter much the same way he began this letter. Again, he's bookending this letter much the same way that he began the letter. He is ending this letter. And I wanted to show you just three things in these last six verses that we want to take home with us as we consider the close of First Thessalonians. First of all, Paul ends this powerful little letter with a prayer for God's people. This book has been saturated with prayer. I hope that you have seen that. We've seen three powerful prayers in in chapter 1, in chapter 3, and now here again in chapter 5. As as Paul prays for the people of God, this, this church at Thessalonica, and also this prayer is applied to us. And I want you to see how he prays for us. As we consider what it looks like for us to pray for one another, let's consider how the Apostle Paul is teaching us here how we should pray for one another. First of all, he prays for our purity. We've talked about this many times. So often we we spend so much of our prayer life uh, praying for physical needs and we should do that. But I want to bring some balance again this morning to this thought that there are also spiritual needs that need to come to the forefront of our praying. Yes, we should pray for those who are sick, those who are struggling with various diseases. But we ought to also recognize that there is a spiritual disease that will lead to not just a temporal death, but an eternal death. And so we ought to be concerned about the soul just as much as we are about the body. He prays for the purity of God's people, for their sanctification. We've seen this theme all throughout this letter, this sanctifying work of God where he makes us to be holy as Christ is holy. As we consider this idea of sanctification, we we see the Bible talking about this, this issue of sanctification in three different tenses. Sometimes the Bible talks about sanctification in the past tense. And we would call that 
positional sanctification. What we mean by that is that, that we have a new position as followers of Jesus Christ who have been saved by grace through faith in Him. That we have a new position. We have been made holy by what Jesus did for us at the cross some 2,000 years ago. So now we are positionally sanctified. We can say we are a holy people. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ today, you are a holy person, not because of your own holiness or your own righteousness, but because of his. So we are positionally sanctified in the past tense. This is a done deal. But then the Bible also talks about sanctification in the present tense. This is what we would call progressive Sanctification. That means there's an ongoing work of God in our lives by which He is making us holy. He declares us holy in that positional sanctification and He makes us to be holy through that progressive sanctification which takes place from the time we come to know Christ as our Savior until the day we go to meet Christ in that eternal state. This progressive work of sanctification as he makes us holy. So sanctification is past tense. Sanctification is present tense. Sanctification in the scriptures is also future tense. Because the Bible talks about the reality that we are looking forward to a day when the work of sanctification will find its full and complete finish. We we might call that perfect sanctification there will be no more sin to deal with it will already have been done there will be no more progressive work of holiness it will be complete when we stand before our king we will stand before him holy in every way so paul prays for our purity for our set apartness for our sanctification. We saw this powerful prayer in chapter 3. Where he prayed, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Notice the reason. So that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. That's sanctification right there. God establishing our hearts, not just our behaviors. The behavior flows out of the heart. He may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. From the very beginning of this letter, Paul prayed for our sanctification. Here in chapter 3, we see him praying for our sanctification. And here today in chapter 5, we see Paul once again praying that we would be sanctified. Verse 23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, fully. Nothing left to be done. And may your whole spirit and body and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his prayer for us. And he's teaching us how to pray for one another. 
And church, I would just simply ask us this morning, how often do we pray for one another in terms of this great work of sanctification? How often do we pray, not just for physical healing, but the real spiritual healing that will carry us into eternity wholly before our Maker? He's teaching us how to pray for one another. But He not only prays here for our purity, I also see here Him praying for our perseverance. Notice this simple word that he uses, this word of of a keeping. That he says, may you be kept blameless. And that little word kept there is just a, a small reminder that God is doing this work of sanctification in the midst of a larger work that he is doing where he is keeping us in salvation. He brings us to salvation and he keeps us there. And he who begins that good work of salvation in us, he will complete it. As Philippians chapter one reminds us, he will finish everything that he starts. Now, my my earthly father is the king of unfinished projects. We joke with my dad about this all the time. We we moved into uh, the home that my parents built when I was in middle school. We moved in there, and, and I can remember my dad telling the contractor that he wanted to finish the baseboards himself. Just leave the baseboards. I want to finish those myself. That was kind of the finishing touch on the house. I can tell you now my sister owns that house and still to this day, the baseboards in the upstairs are still laid against the wall unfinished. It's been decades, folks. I'm going to tell you, they're never going to get finished until somebody else owns that house and gets that done. Uh, but my dad, the king of unfinished projects. But our heavenly father has never left a project unfinished. What he has begun in you, he will complete. And what he is doing in you, he is doing by his power and for his glory. And so we don't have to wonder about whether we're going to somehow maybe lose this great salvation. Perhaps we're going to do something that's going to offend God in such a way that he's going to reject us. He didn't bring us to himself because of anything in us, nor is he going to maintain this great salvation because of anything in us. It is only by his power and his glory that we are saved and we are sanctified and will one day stand before him glorified. This is his work. He will complete it. Let's go back to that first prayer of this book where Paul writes, we give thanks to God always for all of you, church. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, these three great Christian attributes, faith, hope, and love, we see them demonstrated in various places, especially in the Apostle Paul's writings. We see these reminders that these gifts of God, Ephesians 2 reminds us our faith is a gift of God. 
First John reminds us that we only learn how to love because God who is love teaches us how to love one another. We love because he first loved us. And even this hope that we have is firmly grounded in the finished work of Christ and looking forward to our coming king. That these gifts, faith, hope, and love are a gift of God to us. And these are the things that will sustain us until that final day. And so a prayer for God's people. But then Paul begins to ask for prayers for himself. Verse 25, after this beautiful prayer, after saying he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He will complete the work he has begun. And then in verse 25, he says, so brothers, brothers and sisters, church of God, redeemed people of God, pray for us. Pray for us, Paul says. He and his companions that were continuing that great missionary work of extending the gospel to unknown places. Those who had come to Thessalonica bearing this good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now he says to the same church that had been rescued by the gospel, brothers, pray for us. We cannot do what we're doing apart from your prayers. What we see here is the beginning of a prescription for God's people. So Paul offers a prayer for God's people. Then he gives a prescription for God's people. What are we to be doing? And there are three things here. First of all, we should be praying faithfully for the saints. Specifically for the work of gospel ministry. Praying that the gospel would go forth to those unreached peoples around the world and to the unreached peoples in our community. Praying for spiritual needs all around us and recognizing that just because we've come to Christ doesn't mean that we don't continue to to be spiritually needy. And so we pray For one another, particularly though here, we want to see Paul asking prayer for himself, reminding us of the great need to pray for our leaders. I love the way that Albert Barnes talked about this verse. He said, he, speaking about the Apostle Paul, he was a man of like passions as others, liable to the same temptations, engaged in an arduous work, Often called to meet with opposition and exposed to peril and want. And he peculiarly, I can't even say that word this morning, but you you can read it. He peculiarly needed, I guess the way you pronounce that, the prayers of the people of God. A minister surrounded as he is by temptations is in great danger if he has not the prayers of his people. And to that, this pastor can say a hearty amen. We are so in need of the prayers of God's people. We cannot do what God has called us to do without the prayers of God's people. And so I am personally thankful for the reminders from several of you, even this past week, saying we've been praying for you, Pastor. We've been praying for our VBS. We've been praying for the work of God in this church throughout this community. We need the power of God. And so we must pray. And I would urge you in these days, we need to continue 
steadfastly in prayer. We've used this verse for several years now as a as a keynote for our prayer gatherings, which, by the way, tonight, 5 o'clock, we're going to gather right here in this room for our monthly prayer gathering. And we urge our, one another to continue steadfastly, to literally to devote ourselves to prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So the first prescription is to pray faithfully for the saints, for our leaders, for one another in the body of Christ. But secondly, we're called upon to provide faithfully in our service to one another. Now, if you look there at verse 26, it says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, we can get all wrapped up in the holy kiss. And what is that? Paul references it several times in his letters. This was in that day a common greeting, whether a a kiss upon the forehead or on the cheek or sometimes upon the hand. This was practiced in several different ways in that culture. Even today, uh, we see different cultures practicing a kiss as a as a way of greeting. That's not normative for us. I do remember years ago, we had an evangelist at another church that I was a part of. We had an evangelist that actually practiced the holy kiss. And I'll just be honest with you, it's a little awkward. You know, when the guy who just preached the gospel to you, you're walking out the door and he leans in, you're kind of going, okay, I don't know. what. The, I, I was just wanting to extend the handshake, man. But, you know, it's we just kind of did what we did. But 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 the thing here we can get caught up in is to say, now that's weird. We don't do that anymore. But but again, we want to think about this in terms of a culturally appropriate greeting. And then I want to put that in a larger context here in just a moment. But I Howard Marshall said, what is important here is that the members should have some way of expressing visibly and concretely the love which they have for one another as fellow members of the body. And so don't get caught up in the kiss. Get caught up in what the kiss symbolizes. It's a symbol of our love for one another. So we used to say around here real often in our greeting time, it's time to shake a hand and hug a neck. You don't want to get those out of order because if you shake a neck and hug a hand, that's going to be weird, right? So but that's what we used to say around here, right? We said that for many years, and then we kind of got away from that with COVID and everything. But but again, what, we're, what are we doing there? We're saying let's extend to one another a, a culturally appropriate greeting that symbolizes our love for one another. And so whether it's a hug or a handshake or for those who would feel it appropriate, a, a holy kiss, Whatever that appropriate greeting is, he's saying, let this be a symbol of your love for one another, that others would see how affectionate you are for one another. But again, I want to position that greeting in the larger context of our love for one another as the body of Christ. And I want to challenge us to see that that greeting was just the front door to the kind of Christian hospitality and service to one another in the body of Christ that should characterize the people of God. We ought to be up close and personal in relationships with one another. To follow the example of these brothers that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 16 at the end of that of that great letter, 1 Corinthians, in, in chapter 16, he says, Now I urge you, brothers, 
You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Again, just like we're called to be devoted to prayer, Colossians 4.2. Here he's saying, look to the household of Stephanus, see an example in them. They have devoted themselves, they have given themselves over to the service of the saints. And so I'm seeing this greeting, this welcoming one another, this culturally appropriate sign of affection toward one another as just the front door into what he has called us to as the people of God. That he has called us to have the kind of love relationship that we have seen demonstrated all through this letter. Paul is in love with the church at Thessalonica. He loves these people. This is not just something that he does on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday nights. This is a love relationship that's characterized, yes, by an affectionate greeting, but also by service to one another in love. The way that we serve one another is a demonstration of our love for one another, just as much as that holy kiss might be. And so we provided faithfully for one another in our service to one another. Praying for one another. Having one another in our homes. Encouraging one another. Walking with one another through the trials of this life. As a way of demonstrating our love for each other that comes as a result of Christ's love for us. Not only this, but there's a third prescription We're called to pray, to provide, and we're called to preach faithfully from the Scriptures. And so he says after that part about the greeting and the holy kiss, verse 27, he says, I put you under oath. This is strong language. Paul rarely ever uses this kind of language in his writing. This is a top shelf priority saying, I am laying this before you, pleading with you, urging you, putting you under oath that you would do this thing. What is it? Putting you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now keep in mind, they did not have a Bible in their language that they could just carry around with them. When this letter came to the church at Thessalonica, the only way that the members of the church could receive this letter was for someone to stand up in the gathering and to read this letter. And here Paul says, he says, I want you to make sure that all the brothers and sisters in the church hear this letter read. And likely not just one time, but there would be a repetition of the reading of this letter so that they might soak in the contents. Now, is Paul just some kind of egomaniac here who's saying my words are so important that everyone needs to be sure to hear them? No, Paul was recognizing that he was writing the very words of God for the people of God. That the very scriptures were being poured out from his pen. As Peter would write, he was being carried along by the Holy Spirit in bringing forth these letters that now compose our Bible. And he's saying to us and reminding us that the word of God must be a top shelf priority for us in the church. 
And church, I want to say to us again, we are living in a day when we are watching church after church and denomination after denomination walk away from the faithful preaching of the word of God. We are watching churches follow and fall into a way of pragmatism where we will just do whatever works. Who cares what the Bible says? We'll just do whatever works. Whatever gets people in the doors, whatever gets butts in the seat and bucks in the offering plate, that's what we'll do if it works, do that. And so the things that are in this book that are offensive to our culture, let's ignore those things. That's the predominant thought in the church today. This idea of a, of a pragmatic view of what God has called us to do. And we have forgotten, church. We have forgotten that from the very beginning, the word of God has been an offense to sinners. Go back to the very beginning. Go back to the book of Genesis and be reminded that the word of God is an offense to sinners. We don't want to hear what God has to say until he takes the blinders off of our eyes, until he takes hold of those stone cold hearts and causes them to beat as new hearts of flesh. We don't want to hear the things that God has to say because God says some things that are hard. And church, God is saying some things that are hard right now. And it's going to require us to ask the question, will we cling to the true and steadfast word of God, the, the God who is unchanging and faithful in all his ways? Will we cling to these things or will we follow a path of pragmatism? It says, well, let's just do whatever works. Whatever gets people in the door. If this program works, let's do it. If having this kind of event works, let's do it. If it's going to offend people to talk about certain lifestyles, let's not talk about that. Let's disregard what the Bible says about gender roles and various other things. And let's just do whatever works. It's dangerous, church. And the more we are concerned about pleasing man, the less likely we will be to actually please God. And so he says to them, I put you under oath. Have this letter read to all the brothers. A similar thing he encourages Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 when he says, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. That the word of God be central among us. Not our personal preferences. Not our pragmatism. Not the way we want things. The way we think that things should be. At the end of the day, church, let's be reminded the church is the church of Jesus Christ. It's not my church. It's not your church. We do belong to this church, but the owner of the church is Jesus Christ. Why? Because he bought us with his blood. So it belongs to him. So he gets to call the shots. And there's a lot of places where we don't like that. But we need it. 
We need it. Let's be like the early church in Acts chapter 2. We need to come back to basic things in these days. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the word of God. To the fellowship, to their relationships with one another. Again, relationships that were characterized by warm greetings, but also by serving one another in love. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. Simple things, but powerful. Finally this morning, Paul ends this letter with a prayer for God's people, with a prescription for God's people. But then I love this. He ends the very last verse with a promise for God's people. Now you might read verse 28 and miss the promise, but I don't want you to this morning. This is good stuff. He concludes with this final word, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Remember how Paul began this letter, grace and peace to you. And now he has prayed for their peace and he is extending to them this final encouragement that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace is the summation of the gospel. That God has not treated us as our sins deserve. That he has not left us as our sin, in our sin. That he has shown mercy to us. He has brought us to himself through the finished work of the cross. And he is here reminding them of the grace of God. And I, and I think that that grace points back just a few verses. And not just to the finished work of the cross but to another truth that he has already talked about in verse 23, this reminder that our king is coming. As we consider grace, we look back to the cross work that our Savior did on our behalf, but we are also, as we consider grace, we are called to look forward to, to look forward to in hope that same king who died on the cross for our sins coming back in the fullness of his glory this letter has been accentuated chapter after chapter with the exclamation mark of the coming of our king i want to remind you i want to review these just real briefly as we come toward a close this morning First Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine, as he's talking there in chapter one of the church, he said, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. By the way, church, that's the testimony of every believer in this room. Every one of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ today, we turned away from in repentance, our idolatry and turned to the living and true God and his son, Jesus Christ. You turned from God to idols to serve the living and true God and, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We look back to the cross. We look forward to his coming. First Thessalonians 2. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? He's talking to the church here. Is it not you that we are boasting, that we will boast about you or our glory and joy? When the king comes, there will be great boasting. It will not be in our works. 
They will be in that finished work of Christ. They will be in God demonstrating His beauty and glory and majesty in His church. Church, we don't often look very majestic today. We're often still battling with sin, unreconciled relationships, the mess of ministry in a sin-broken world. But one day, by the grace of God, all that will be done away with. And we will stand as an emblem of the great and glorious God that rescued us from sin and death and hell and the grave and brought us into relationship with Him and is preparing a place for us even now that one day we will go and be with Him where He is. First Thessalonians 3. Now may our God and Father Himself Our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. And here it is, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. By the way, we've seen several times here the connection between this work of sanctification that God is doing and the coming of our King. Our sanctification will ultimately lead to his return. First Thessalonians four. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Our king is coming. He's laying out here for us some of the details of what it's going to look like when he comes. And we talked about, even as we went through chapter 4, there's a whole lot of disagreements about how it's all going to go down. But he's given us what we need to know. The king is coming. The dead in Christ, those who have died in faith, will rise first. And we will meet the Lord in the air in his victory parade. And finally today. This final prayer of this letter, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. It is his work. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this promise. He who calls you is faithful, church. He has never failed. He has never come up short. He has never left one promise unfulfilled all of them have either been fulfilled or are in the process of being fulfilled he is faithful he will surely do it how do we know that because only he can only he has perfect knowledge and perfect power only he who is perfect in his holiness is able to accomplish all that he has set out to do. He is faithful. He will surely do it. Our king is coming. And we have this final promise as well in his grace. That his grace will carry us until that day when our faith is made sight. That the grace of God is unmerited favor toward us, received as a gift by faith. If this will carry us until the day when we stand face to face with our King. 
I so love what Chuck Swindoll said. He said, our God has compassion filling his eyes because his wrath has been appeased at the cross. We don't have to drag our good deeds before him like sacrificial offerings, hoping he's in a good mood that day. Please take that in. He demands nothing more of us for salvation than that we receive his love and forgiveness as a gift. Christ's blood has done the work of atonement and God is satisfied. And so if you are sitting here this morning and you're asking in your heart, what must I do in order to gain the favor of God, in order to be made right with Him, what must I do? I would say to you, based upon the authority of Scriptures, everything that needs to be done has already been done. There are no good works for you to add. There is nothing for you to contribute He has done it all. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And it's so easy for us to fall back into this works-based mentality where we think we've got to add something to this glorious gospel. But the more we try to add, the more we take away. And so we rest. Church, we are called to rest in the finished work of Christ, even as we continue to wrestle with the realities of a sin-broken world. This world is hard, but our God is faithful. And so we can be of good courage. In fact, Paul writes, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord For we walk by faith and not by sight. Church, let us continue to walk by faith. Trusting in our Savior. Loving one another. Seeking to reach this lost and dying world with this glorious gospel that has rescued us. Asking God to give us the power, the courage... And the encouragement to walk in faithfulness before Him until we stand in His presence. I want to invite us to bow together and we're going to pray. And I want to invite our brother, Craig Kinser. Craig and Pam are our newest members here. And Craig asked if he could share a word of testimony this morning. So just some things. I think the balance of what we're talking about is probably borne out really well in what's happening in Craig's life right now. The fact that we live, again, in a world, it's it's difficult. And yet God is faithful. And those two things are not at odds with one another. Those two things are actually working in conjunction with one another to accomplish the glory of God in this world that he created. And so I want to pray, and I want to invite Craig to come and share some of what God's doing in in his life and his family right now. And then I'll come and close us in prayer. Father, we pray this morning, we ask that you would help us to see the light, the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
Help us to see that you are the God who proclaims your own faithfulness, the own, the surety of your finished work, because you're the only one that knows the end from the beginning. We don't know how so many things are, are going to work out. We only know from your faithful word that you are trustworthy and we can look to you. And so we pray in a day of uncertainty that you would give us faith. Give us eyes to see what we're not seeing right now. Give us ears to hear your faithful word. And give us hearts that are ready and willing to pursue the kind of love that you have called us to in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.